Welcome to the Standard of Truth podcast. In this podcast, Dr. Garrett Dirkmont and Professor Richard LaDuke explore the early history of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and the life and teachings of Prophet Joseph Smith. They examine the original historical sources and provide context for events of the past. They approach the history of the Church with faith, expertise, and humor. Hi, welcome to another episode of the Standard of Truth Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Garrett Dirkmont, and I'm joined by my friend, Professor Richard LaDuke. Hello, Garrett. In this episode, we're going to talk about archives and sources, so uh, go ahead and sit down, grab some popcorn, and uh, enjoy. Yeah, you, you really sell you that hard. To stop selling. <laughs> Richard, <laughs> I don't, I don't care. Richard's obviously Just, done. Yeah, yeah, done. This hey. is the beginning of the end of the podcast. When you look back and say, hey, how come it went off after three seasons? Well, I see, I see Andrew throwing his life away, pursuing, after his mission, of course, pursuing a life of uh, history, possibly English. Possibly English. Possibly yeah, English. Yeah, I mean, he could, he, I think he said burning money. Is that- <laughs> yeah, yeah. Of course, we're teasing. We love all of our uh, history and English listeners. My mom was an English teacher. Well, there you go. But my mom would also say it was not the way to a million dollars. No, no, no. But yeah. it's, a, it's a noble profession. So we Quite have a co- noble, very low paying. <laughs> so we start off uh, with uh, an email from a Canadian listener. First of all, uh, I have a tremendous affinity for the, the great country of, of Canada. Um, my family came uh, to you know, where we are now, eventually, from Canada, through France to Canada, and then and then here. We came Jean Le Duc in sixteen fifty five. He was he was granted an acre of land in, in Montreal. Uh, a whole acre. Whole acre. So this is in the but this is in a in an urban center of Montreal. Uh, no, no, there's no uh in 1655. 1655-ish. What's the population of Montreal in 1655 or, or Canada in general? The population of New France, <laughs> which isn't just Canada. New France is everything all the way down to where New Orleans is. Every part of North America is considered New France. Okay. So it's a pretty sizable chunk of land. So I'm guessing so think of the, 40, 50 million people? Think, <laughs> think of the Louisiana Purchase. Okay. All of that land. Plus all of the land that the French once had in Canada, which is, you know, far exceeds just the, the area of, of, of Quebec today. Um, all of that was owned by, by France at the time. So the entirety of New France, all of that, we are talking literally millions and millions of acres. Right. There are 2,000 people that live in all of that combined. Now, caveat, there are hundreds of thousands of Native Americans, but the French aren't counting them, okay? okay? There are 2,000 French living in all of North America in 1655. So so, so the one acre that Jean is granted. Well, well, first of all, I realize today, you know, prices for real estate are pretty high in Montreal. You know, I'm going to look and see what an acre no, no, land in, no. in Montreal would cost uh, Well, today. in the city itself, I'm yes. I'm sure it'd be a lot. Yeah. A, yeah. At the same time, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that land prices were not sky high in New France in 1655. Mm. Granting someone an acre of land <laughs> in New France in 1655 is probably the equivalent of the give a penny, take a penny 
that you would get <laughs> at a, a ho- at a holiday can? station. Yeah, where okay. you can put a penny in, you can take. Oh, I need an extra two cents to complete my purchase, because um, yeah, land was everywhere, and and you know they they don't yet have anything called central heat, so um, there's a lot of land. How your ancestors somehow wrangled an entire acre to his own. <laughs> Who granted it to him, does it say? Let's see. It was granted uh, by the lords of the island of Montreal. Oh, so by the, 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 the people running the town, basically. Yeah, there you go. So he showed up as an immigrant, and they said, you know what? We've just got so much land, we're giving it away. Really? A whole farm? Uh, An acre. I mean, I mean, it depends on what you think you can grow in our gigantic, lengthy Canadian growing season <laughs> here in here in Montreal. <laughs> Uh, anyway, so I love Canada from, uh, well, not from there, but I have great affinity for it as my people are, are from there. So this is from our uh, a Canadian listener. It's a subject, Canadian complaint to the extreme danger of listening to your podcast, warning required. Message, dear almost Dr. Dirk, or Dr. Dirk Mott, almost Dr. Dirk Mott. Uh, dear, That's pretty awesome. Yeah, dear, I've lost my title. <laughs> dear almost Dr. Leduc. By the way, I met with my dissertation chair uh, yesterday. I think I'm further away from it than I thought that I was. I think he's at this point uh, saying almost ABD. <laughs> Your name does not does not appear strange or difficult to Canadians. And the other doctor, I think it is Dick Miat. Oh boy, he went for that name. Being pseudo-Canadians, Idaho is close. <laughs> <laughs> I, I should not have to make you aware of the extreme weather available to us in the far north, but alas, it seems I do. In Canada, we frequently have cold snaps of negative 40. Notice I did not specify Celsius or Fahrenheit, or in this case, potentially Kelvin, as it does... Kelvin? <laughs> What's the absolute zero? <laughs> as it does not matter at that temperature. Additionally... It can snow on any day of the year, and I mean any day. I recall 12 inches of snow. I translated that for you. By the way, that's 30.48, uh, 30.48 centimeters. Translating oh, wow. that back on uh, the 23rd of August one year. I digress. So back to my complaint. Does he live in Yellowknife? Where is he? <laughs> I think he's. I think he's. Uh, I think he's in uh, Alberta province. Okay, I believe. But he's not like in none of it. That's no, yeah. Got 30 yeah, yeah. inches in August. <laughs> no. I digress. So back to my complaint. Earlier this week, and we assume this email was sent, I don't know, a year ago. I don't know. We, we're really behind on uh, reading yeah. some of these emails. Uh, earlier this week, I took a stroll around my neighborhood, and he spelled it with an unfamiliar U, by the yeah. way, floating his, somewhere his in the middle. Neighborhood. Yeah, neighborhood. Okay, I'm not going to translate everything, he says, parenthetically as I usually do every evening. Since retiring, I find it necessary to keep up my activity by walking to try to keep off the kilograms or pounds. And we appreciate you not using stones. Um, and by the way, all of this conversion talk, uh, I, I love a good uh, I love a good conversion. You like it when people convert. It's, I, I love it. Yeah. So a stone is about 14 pounds. Okay. So we're going to have a little a little uh, quiz game here to uh, to Garniff Dick me at. Wow. Um, so stones fourteen pounds. Do you know how much a smidgen is? I'm assuming the the little last bit of cake that you're trying to get. So it's a, <laughs> um it's one thirty uh, second of a teaspoon. A, 
thirty-second of a teaspoon. One thirty-second of a smidgen. It's a smidgen. It's a real. It's a real wow. uh, unit was, of measure. Yeah. Okay. That now, now makes a lot more of the insults I've received in the past. So, so. now we're going. Uh, some of my favorite units of measure relate to wine. Um, oh, of course, of course, um, especially with the incredible wine they grow in Yellowknife. <laughs> So a uh, hogshead of wine. Oh, a hogshead. Well, that's a good American. Is, is about is about how many gallons of wine? I would guess sixty. Really, sixty three gallons of yeah. wine. All right. So I, that's because I'm going off of hogsheads of tobacco, the same barrel size for when they were shipping tobacco in early America. How about that? All right, we've we've come back. Yeah, come well, back sorry. to your wheelhouse. Yeah, there's my wheelhouse. Okay, yeah. how about a buttload of wine? A, a what? A buttload of wine. It's a, it's a legitimate term. Weight. I feel like now we have to put an explicit reference on our no, podcast. It's a legit, uh, this isn't uh, a butt of wine. Can you spell that for me? In a B-U-T-T-L-O-A-D, buttload of please wine. Please use it in a sentence. <laughs> I bought, I drank last night, I drank a buttload of wine. <laughs> That's the same kind of sentence that I receive uh, when, when I was in college with all of my roommates. But I don't actually think they were referring directly to the exact standard of measurement. Well, so this is very important. And so usually... Cultural term. <laughs> our, our our wives who sit in as we record these episodes are asleep. And my wife uh, woke up and frantically uh, shook her cell phone in front of me as to point out that the unit for both uh, a hogshead or a butt of, uh, of wine... I mean, they do vary. Vary, yes. So 15th century measurement, maybe 63 gallons. Uh, today, maybe 79 gallons. Yeah. And frankly, the more wine that you drink, the less you can tell how much is left in the barrel. Anyway. Yes, and so so, so also then a, a butt of wine or a buttload of wine would be 132 to maybe 120, 120 to 132 gallons. You know, what's what's 12 gallons among friends? Well, that, you know what? I, it it's only matters when it's the last 12 gallons. So manpower compared to horsepower, how many how many men for one horsepower? Seven. Ten. Close. Oh. You're very close. And the last, this one I loved, an olf is a unit of odor. I don't know. <laughs> spell that one for me? O-L-F. O-L-F is a unit of odor. So, so a person that, that uh, practices good hygiene, that showers frequently, they would be have, at a standard of one olf. Somebody that would be exercising, um, uh, maybe five olfs. Uh, a subway train in France, three million yeah. <laughs> olfs. Angie and I have ridden that train into Paris. It's rough. In the summer, it is. It was very it was hot, rough. and it was very... It was it, it was olfy. Yeah, it was olfy. Uh, heavy smoker, twenty five olfs. That's just to oh, give you a range. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. I've never heard of that before. Back to the email. I, I feel like Richard's <laughs> inventing things. We're going to need to do. We're going. We've had several people offer to take his place. We're going to actually have to start. We're going to have to start with auditions. I usually enjoy listening to your podcast during the peace and quiet of my walk. However, this week a cold front and a snowstorm blew in just before the apex of my route. I live in a hilly area, spitting distance from the Rocky Mountains. I was I was merrily listening to that. Uh, no one has ever said that no. they were merrily nope. listening to nope. us. Uh, Even uh, the Christmas until episodes. Until he reaches the valley, oh. Laughing and crying as I went. I was so distracted by the story of Dr. Dick Miot's name <laughs> that, I, that I failed uh, to reduce my speed on the descent home. In my own defense... I must state that my vision was obscured now by my freezing tears. 
The ice had already formed beneath my feet, and I began to pick up speed. Normally, this would not be a problem, as I am properly attired and very well adept at negotiating slippery terrain. However, it was a perfect storm, literally. <laughs> Obscured vision, black ice, and a sharp downhill run with a turn at the end leading to a multi-lane road. I frantically kept it together, arms flailing in the air for balance, all the while, or all the way to the multi-lane road, whereupon my feet slipped out from under me, and I cracked my head on the ice-laden oh. road. Oh. Blackness ensued. When I woke up, not sure how long I was out, I was happy to be alive. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why that, that that's funny, actually. <laughs> I, it's a little morbid on your part that you read it. You're like, he cracked his head open. I'm over here thinking, oh my gosh, I hope Happy he's okay. Happy to be alive. And I'm like, oh my <laughs> gosh, that's hilarious. Oh, you are lucky to be alive because I'm reading your email. Yeah. Um, I am told that lying in the middle of the road late at night can be hazardous to health, even in a socialist medical state. <laughs> oh, man. That's funny. Alberta's medical costs are paid by the oil slush fund. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, he's... He's trying to incite a war right oh, now. That is so. That is so great. Um, sorry, I lost my place. Oil slush fund. I slowly and carefully made it to the rest of the way home, writing this email um, in my head. My phone also cracked on the ice. It was in my back pocket, causing it to malfunction. So I had to stop listening. Don't worry. I downloaded again on my computer when I got home. So your number should be okay. We, that, first of all. Before we're glad you're okay, thank you for two downloads for that episode. So we're very grateful, <laughs> yes. Carl. Uh, so as a suggestion, please include a warning for all northern climates to listen to the podcast in bad weather at their own risk. Thank you, Carl. Uh, P.S. Sorry, I have no question, only the complaint. I do continue to enjoy the podcast tremendously and have even used some of your material in Sunday School and Elder Quorum. Keep up the keep up the good but potentially dangerous work. This is this is great, Carl. We we really appreciate it. Um, safety first on Standard of Truth podcast um, for our Canadian listeners. Um, we're huge in Finland, um, <laughs> all of Scandinavia, some of Denmark, I think part we of have, Iceland. We have zero listeners <laughs> in those places. Yeah, you can do a direct. So, how many members of the church? And then we have. Um, a smidgen of that listenership essentially yeah. is where that is. Uh, so no, another reason. So first of all, Carl, thank you again. That was a wonderful email. Very funny. Um, we're glad you're okay. We assume you're okay. We're glad you're okay. <laughs> we hope you're okay. We hope you're okay. Although maybe, you know, long-term damage. We don't, we hope not. Dear uh, President Dirk Mott and <laughs> General LeDuc. Oh, you just keep getting better and better titles. I do. Uh, I've been sitting here for almost half an hour trying to compose some witty and hilarious introduction to catch your attention and increase my odds of getting my questions read and answered. I give up. I'm not. Uh, I'm just not that cr funny or creative. So here goes straight up. Oh, well. You know what? Right to the point. That worked. Honesty. In an Enzyme article from September of eight, uh, 18, 1985, Gordon B. Hinckley writes a masterful piece from 38 years ago that is wonderfully apropos for today. My questions come from that article. President Hinckley mentions a letter from Joseph Smith to Josiah Stoll, dated 1825, which would make it the first communication we have in Joseph's own hand. Also mentioned is a letter from Martin Harris to W.W. Phelps, dated October 1830. President Hinckley says that the church is in possession of these documents. I'm pretty sure in your research that you have read these letters. 
President Hinckley implies that the contents of the letters have been used by unscrupulous writers to try to undermine Joseph and the Book of Mormon. Can you please tell us more about said letters and how they fit into early church history? Needless to say, actually it's not needless to say, it is, it is needed to say. I love your podcast and look forward to each Thursday's drop. There's also a Monday drop, Dan. We recommend the premium content as well as the free newsletter that comes out um, <laughs> once a month uh, like the ghost of Christmas future in his own good time. Uh, needless to say, I love your podcast. Look forward to each Thursday's drop. God bless the significant work you are doing and how it blesses us. Sincerely, Dan. Thank you, Dan. Okay. Well, that's a great question, but I think we have another question that's similar and related. So let's let's read that one okay. too, so we can kind of answer them all together because I think that they they're symbiotic of a in a way. I agree, dear Richard. I've written I've written in multiple times. I've tried my darndest to be heard. <laughs> Only, <laughs> wow, this is this yeah. Is, so we had a couple where people just they know they're not going to be heard. Yeah, and by the way, the the strategy is dear Richard because uh, it stands out, and uh, I'm I'm more likely to read it. Because I have a huge, unquenchable ego. Yes. I've tried... <laughs> he just passed right over that. No, that's true. Yes. That's very true. I have a huge ego. Yes, he does. <laughs> I've tried my darndest to be heard, only asking you questions and totally leaving out Dr. Dirkmont. I've tried humor. I'm out of tax... Tax... Taxics? You're never out of taxes. I mean, you're never out you're of taxes. Never, taxes it's, will be there. Yes. Death and taxes. Uh, I'm out of tactics. I've decided to just ask a sincere question that has really bothered me lately. You know what? Here you go. Anyway, I have some friends who have all but left the church. They are snufferites. And they follow his tenets and believe him to be inspired. I've had several discussions with them and I've realized that they have, that they have the same problems others have with early church history. It's difficult. They don't have context and there are a lot of crafty writers out there. The real question they i have concerns the supposed hiding or covering up of the church's past they ask why all of a sudden do we know this or why did it take so long for the joseph smith papers to be published for the world yeah garrett why did it take you guys so long we're not very good at what we do they see this flow of information from church vaults archives histories or whatever as somewhat secretive in the past and now that the church has been exposed in quotation marks they decide to let it out i feel somewhat incapable of answering some of these questions i understand the budgetary limits time constraints and even technological problems but i guess i need help developing this rebuttal more I guess it would be nice for your co-host, Dr. Dirkmont, you know what, I'll ask him, to discuss his experience with Joseph Smith Papers. How did he uncover new documents? What happens when a new document was discovered? Further examination of some uh, Joseph Smith Paper documents led to date changes on some revelations in the Doctrine and Covenants as an example. What's, uh, what archives did he use? What was the process to compile, edit, publish a volume? How did the church archives work? How does the First Presidency have it open to papers and archives? It's kind of an overload, but any clarification on the matter would be helpful. Um, sincerely, he didn't write sincerely, but I assume he meant it. Avid, well, he was pretty angry he hadn't responded to him before. Avid Hawaiian listener, Ooh. Taylor. Taylor, I think in order for us to answer your emails, you have to invite us to stay at your house. <laughs> 
uh, with with our families. Garrett uh, will bring all of his papers and just bundles will, of papers. I'll just bring papers. We'll spread them out around the floor. But there is that caveat. It's, it's as if Zoom doesn't exist. If you're a Hawaii listener, this has to be in person. We have to we have to come all of us, um, and and of course you'd have to welcome us with open arms. One hundred percent, Carl. Uh, we'll zoom you in Canada. Yeah. Carl, Zoom happens to work to Alberta. <laughs> Just it doesn't work to Hawaii. Uh, nothing says I want a winter vacation more than you know what? What if we headed up to what if we went to Calgary? I mean, Carl just sent us an email. He slipped and cracked his head. Yeah, we'll we'll see you in in uh, in July, maybe. Yeah, yeah, and which is still probably <laughs> thirty to forty. Yeah, they got they got thirty centimeters of snow in August. Like a couple yeah, years ago. yeah, it was it was incredible. Was that a metric ton or? <laughs> anyway, um, <clears throat> so they're related questions, right? Because one is about these early documents, and then the other is you know, really kind of this. Um, this antagonistic argument against the current leadership of the church. Now, look, many people listening might not even be familiar with uh, Denver Snuffer and his movement. And that's fine. I'm not inviting you to go, you know, let's hurry and download everything he has to say. But he's a, a leader of essentially this offshoot group um, of, of people that claim that Joseph Smith was a prophet but that after that, the church lost its way. And luckily, luckily, we all have him to help lead us back. Oh, my you know? goodness. Yeah, it's, it's, oh, it's lucky for all of us, oh goodness, honestly. We're so just so, so lucky that uh, he has the true uh, answers. But the the following is, is, is fairly robust. There are thousands of people who have essentially left the church, not because they are... You know, uh, they, they can't handle the church's stance on on a social issue or because they um, just don't believe Joseph Smith's truth claims, but because they believe that the church after Joseph Smith went astray. And part of the way that they do that is by 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 making claims about later things in, in Latter-day Saint history. And so it is a fairly common tact from uh some of these groups to claim that the the church is it, it's very funny that they will claim that the church is hiding things that people don't have access to them and then when the church provides access to them to discredit the things for which the access was provided right so so here we're going to we're going to produce this journal that hasn't been made published before and instead of saying, great, now we know what so-and-so had to say, the response is instead, why did, why did it take so long for it to become public? I mean, now, I understand why that question is, is had. And, and frankly, look, every archivist and every historian knows that every repository, every archive has restrictions on its use. Um, and, and some items that are just simply not they, they are not available. When I was going to my PhD school, uh, one of the, the people that I was with was writing a history of Coca-Cola, which sounds like that's awesome, right? And Coca-Cola, when I was there in, in you know, when I was working on my PhD, like Richard isn't right now, <laughs> uh, when I was working on it, those archives are not open archives. Now, there are some things you can get from their archives, 
but they aren't necessarily letting people come in and get the secret formula. So one thing that historians understand, though we're often frustrated by it, that the general public does not understand is that all archives, all <clears throat> document collection repositories have some items that are simply off limits. Now, sometimes that's because they're brittle or frail. Sometimes it's because they are of a personal nature. And when they are religious archives, more often than not, a lot of things are, are off limits. It's, it's not just a Latter-day Saint uh, issue. Now, if you're a Latter-day Saint or affiliated with the Latter-day Saints or, you know, a following Denver snuffer, then every single thing that is not publicly available suddenly becomes nefarious, right? That, that then it's just nefarious. But that's, that's just simply not the case. I mean, for instance, I, I was at a, a diplomatic historians, uh, conference years ago. And the person who came to speak to us was the director of the CIA. Well, that's kind of a big deal, right? And the historians there, they went after him pretty, pretty hardcore because one of the things they were asking was about why can't we have access to the presidential daily briefings? Right? So what's the presidential daily briefing? Well, the presidential daily briefing is the daily briefing that's given to the president as the name implies yeah oh yeah t tell me more garrett what, well, about the president do you want that do you want that in metric do you want that in metric you want how many hogshead is that yeah it's a, it's a lot, load it's of a briefing. Lot of, it's a lot of hogsheads let me tell you that well because but the nature of the the briefing is it's different than any other interaction with the president the nature of it is presenting him especially with um national security issues and having incredibly candid conversations about them. So there's a fear in the American intelligence community that were those conversations ever to become public, once that happened, even if it was for a president 50 years from now, that the current president would no longer be as forthcoming with what he actually thinks, knowing that at some point it was going to be public. Now, you might be listening to this saying like, no, no, it should also be public. I mean, look, at some point, yes, those things obviously have to become public. But he was making this argument to these, these historians who were there, were like, look, the nature of the briefing, its existence is so that it's never public. It was created so that it would never become public. That Its purpose is that it's not public. It wouldn't exist if there was a public version of it. It exists to have a version that will never be public, so that there is no worry about what someone's potential, you know, what, what, is, my, what is my legacy going to say about how much money we should commit to this or not to that. It's a straight-up conversation without any eventual circumstances at all. And so, look, you can dispute that. Someone can say, well, I still think they should all be public. You know, he shouldn't be saying one thing behind closed doors and one thing in public. Well, we should probably have a whole other podcast on, you know, how much information is made public by the government. But the, the point is, 
This is not a question for Latter-day Saint archivists and historians alone. It is a question of corporate institutions that have archives like Coca-Cola. It is a question of uh, civic institutions. You know, is is uh, uh, you know the Red Cross going to make all of their archives available to literally anyone who wants to look at them? Now, someone again might listening might very cavalierly say, "Well, yeah, of course they should." Really? Because all of the Red Cross's records include things like the names of people that are donating blood. Did they did they sign up for that? Did they say it's okay to release their name? Right? You see what I'm saying? Like, in general, we say things like, oh, you should just make it all public. Now, we say that right up until someone tries to make our information public. And then we say, wait a minute, that's different. Um, so... That's not to say that there, you know, you couldn't have more things that, that have public access, but it's important to understand the nature of archives in and of themselves. They are primarily repositories. And the earlier an institution is in its life, <clears throat> the more they are dumping grounds rather than places of analysis, right? So for the first, you know, 60 years of the church, there's, there's no church historian's office. I mean, there's, there are people that are called to be the church historian, but what's the, what's the church archives? It's, it's Willard Richards dresser. That's the archives. He's got a collection of papers in his bureau and no, he's not cataloging them and assigning them numbers and allowing people to come and research them and set them aside. Clearly an organization has not professionalized its history the moment that it's created. Frankly, and this is going to go back to our, back to Andrew from last uh, uh, podcast. Um, you wouldn't think it, but when people are forming an organization, a company, a charity, a religion, it is not the first office that they fill that of historian. Uh, I, I imagine that we have some entrepreneurs listening. Right, Richard teaches entrepreneurs, in fact. I do. How many of them, as their business plan, have a corporate historian? They're just trying to keep their head above water. And so they hate history. <laughs> I don't know that they hate it. They're trying to hide history. They're hiding all of the history. Yeah, right. Well, I mean, at least from the IRS. Right? That's, <laughs> no, no, no question about that. That's well, a separate class. Separate, oh, yeah. Different class. Richard doesn't teach that one. But the the point is... History, by its nature, is something that organizations come to late. They come to it late because you don't even know that you have an organization worth talking about its history until it's been around a long time. You know, Coca-Cola doesn't need a company historian the month they're founded, right? But there were documents created the month they were founded, right? So now what happens to those documents? So a lot of the process that goes on in an archive is, is legitimately processing documents that have been there forever. There are dozens and dozens and dozens of people, missionaries, volunteers, employees, whose job it is at the church archives to go through not just things that they already have, which is, is legion, right? There are so many things that they already have. But they are constantly getting new acquisitions. 
people are, you know, showing up with pickup trucks of boxes and said, hey, my dad was a University of Utah professor and, and he, he, you know, talked to so-and-so. Do you guys want the boxes of his letters? Well, how do we know whether or not the box, you know, you, you literally have no idea what it is. And so you have to evaluate those. Then you have to determine the access level. Okay, so someone donates a box of level, a box of letters to, to, the, to the archives. Well, what if in a bunch of those letters, someone is, you know, in those documents, someone is, uh, for instance, a bishop, and in their journal, they record in their journal confessions that people have made to them so that they can keep track. Now, they never intended that document to ever be public. But they're writing things down like met with sister so-and-so, you know, she's going to, 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 to be disfellowship for a few weeks, but then she's going to come back and, and I hope to see her back on the road, right? Should that document, which was never intended to be public, which is certainly very, very, very interesting, should it be public? Um, there are all kinds of records which will likely never be public, like the cancellations of ceilings and things like that, that those, those are by definition created to be private. And so there's lots of things in the church archives that are sacred, things that might involve, say, a temple ceremony or a confession. They are private um, or they're confidential. What, what about to the, to the argument that, okay, all right, so I'm not saying all of the things, but some things have been released. Why were those kept uh, from view for as long as they were? Because to the point, critics are saying that they're only releasing them now because they, they have to, but they would have kept them they would have kept them under lock and key before. Right. Well, so when someone makes that argument, they're making an argument for which there is no way to determine it. You're doing a counterfactual history. You're saying, well, yeah, but if they didn't, if, if this didn't happen, they wouldn't have released it. Well, you literally have no idea, actually, right? Unless you have someone, again, with a document that's, by the way, probably not public, writing in their journal like, I guess we'll release these because we have to, right? Much more so what's going on is an evolution in the way we treat our history. It starts, you know, in, in, in the 20th century, there starts to be the, the, the early glimmers of a more professionalized history. But think about that. At that point, there's almost 100 years of documents, letters, things like that, that there's no public access Today, there's a nice giant church uh, history library that is designed with the idea of having some things with public access, but, but that wasn't always the case. In fact, when I did my research for my dissertation, I went to, uh, I think it was the fourth floor of the church office building, which was dedicated to, to the archives. And that's how I called documents when I was researching and, 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 and transcribing them. Now, back then, you didn't have the you know, ability to just pull out your cell phone and take a snapshot of things. And many archives believe that taking photos of documents, even in of itself, even without the flash, could potentially damage the documents. And so they wouldn't let you take photos of any kind of them. And so you had to longhand write it out. I, I longhand wrote some things out, not just from, from there, from other archives where um, 
okay, they let me see it, but they wouldn't let me take a picture of it. They wouldn't let me, uh, they would let me transcribe it, but that's it. And no, I couldn't take my computer in there, you know, such as they were, such as the, the you know, the, 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 the 15 hogs head of weight <laughs> computer that I took in. I couldn't, uh, I couldn't simply uh, sit down and transcribe. Many of them wouldn't allow any electronic device at all. Even today, there are archives that will not allow you to take a computer in. And you're thinking, well, why? Because they're just trying to hide everything? Well, documents are very big business. They're a gigantic business. In fact, they're so big that there has been a skyrocketing number of document thefts from archives all over the country because those documents are worth all kinds of money. And so people, I'm not telling anyone how to do this. Don't do what I'm telling you to right. do. No, I'm not telling you to I'm telling you that what there are cases where people will go in with their computer, they will get a bunch of letters, they will be there transcribing them, and then they will take one of the letters, put it inside their computer, close the laptop case, right? And you're walking out with your computer. No one can see that there's a letter in there. And there's a letter in there. And now I'm going to go sell it for $100,000 because it's a letter from Daniel Boone or something like that, right? So archival theft and, and it's, it's really it's, it's brother or sister that is, you know, ill-named forgery are these two aspects surrounding archival and, and library life that you have documents that you're trying to preserve and that you're trying to protect and that people want to steal. On the other hand, you have documents that people are forging and trying to get you to accept or other people to accept as legitimate. Why? Because if they do, suddenly it's worth so much money. There have been, when I was at the Church History Library, it was it seemed like almost every other year, there or, or several times a year, there were people who said, oh, look, I found a, a, a new photo of Joseph Smith. I found this early photo of Joseph Smith. Here it is. Or I found uh, this early photo of Joseph and Brigham together. Now, whenever those were analyzed, the determination was made by, by the researchers there that they weren't, the, they weren't actually Joseph Smith, or at the very least, they could not in any way be determined that it was, you know, but had they been, suddenly this photo that someone found in the bottom of a trunk goes from being worth, you know, very little, or unless it happens to be your family member, to being to being worth possibly, you know, hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions of dollars. And so forgery is a very big business as well. When you're dealing with a church, now you're dealing with not only the idea that there's certain things like confessions that you want to keep private, like sacred ceremonies that you want to keep private, like financial records that uh, especially, you know, for instance, the church does not ever intend to make your tithing donations public, right? And, and most people listening would say, yeah, they better not ever make my tithing donations public. Well, so then you also accept that there are some things that should never, ever, ever be public. And you're right, Richard, that some people say, yeah, well, so you can't do some things, but there's other things you could do. If 
you have processed those materials and if you know what's inside them. So if someone makes a donation, hey, here's W.W. Phelps's letters, okay? How do I know what's in them? Do I, do I just say, oh, I'm sure it's fine? And then, and then you find out, oh, here's where he copied down the temple ceremony when he was in, right? I mean, so you have to go over them. Well, when you're getting thousands and thousands and thousands of donations, thousands of pages, you can't just simply go over them overnight. You don't even know what's there. And then there's all kinds of backlog of things that happen there. Great example of this is the shorthand notes of the, of the Brigham Young, John Taylor, Wilford Woodruff sermons. Um, you know, most people know those prophets because of the Journal of Discourses and those sermons that were published in the Journal of Discourses. But there were many, many, many other sermons that they gave that were never transcribed or published. And the scribe who was sitting there copying down what they what they said as they said it, they, they copied it down in shorthand. Well, these shorthand notes are essentially illegible to anyone who hasn't been trained in Pittman shorthand. I mean, it looks like, you know, a, a completely different language. It, it looks like someone's got even worse handwriting than Willard Richards, which maybe his handwriting was so bad because he had so many pistols. Put a pistol down and then try to write a letter. You know what I'm saying? So he, you have these hundreds of pages of manuscript that for all intents and purposes look like illegible scribbles. So as archivists are working through what they have, it's a pretty normal procedure to say, I have no idea what this is. Let's set it aside. And, and each successive one saying, I don't know what this is. I mean, it looks important, but I don't know what it is. Only when you get someone who's a shorthand specialist who sees it and says, uh, that's shorthand. We, we should figure out what that is. Is there a reason that, that so much then has been coming just relatively recently within the last 10 to 20 years? Sure. The church has devoted more resources to history in the past 20 years than the entirety of the 200 years prior to that combined. Really professionalizing their history department? Yeah. I mean, look, you did have some professional history. Look, there's always, again, with religions, there's always a tension between you know, the, the drive of the scholar to want to make more things accessible so that people can write a complete history and the drive of the, the religion or the other institution to want to keep some of its, some of its, its inner workings private because they are private because, you know, again, just like we had the conversation at the presidential daily briefing. Well, if there were verbatim records of say the quorum of the 12 having a conversation about something now the curiosity that i would have over that would be i i desperately want to know what it is i would love to hear the back and forth right but if those things regularly became public would that change how open people are in the discussion of course it, it would have to look anyone who says that it wouldn't for you has never had a conversation with your children about a topic that they really shouldn't be talking to you about, right? So when your when your six year old asks you where babies come from, you probably didn't say, "Well, you know what? Let's start first with and and just you know broke it all down to them." You probably gave them a little bit of a something because audience matters, and and that is to say that that. More and more things are becoming public. So I get asked all the time, well, where do the Joseph papers come from? I mean, what, how, how are they publishing them all? Did we go out and find them all? Where do they come from? Well, 
most of them were already in the possession of the church. Many of them had already been published in some format or another. What hadn't they been? They had not been chronologically organized, verified with their text, researched and annotated at the highest levels, and then uh, and then provided with historical context, and then published in in a collection and a format. Now, so, because they're publishing so many of them online, you can go to josephmithpapers.org right now, and you'll find literally thousands, well over 10,000 documents that are full text transcribed online that you can look at. When someone says, well, why didn't they do that before? I, I mean, I, I can't answer the, the answer specifically, but I can certainly say that the resources to do what people are saying, when, when someone says, well, why didn't you just do it? Look, it's an enormous amount of time enormous amount. Anyone who thinks that you just grab a letter and you can type that and throw it up on the internet in, in, in five minutes and that's fine is doing a pretty shoddy job, right? There's, there's a lot of work that goes into it. The church is making more and more and more things available. For instance, there are some documents that contain sacred things where someone's writing in their journal and they copy down temple ceremony stuff because it's their journal. They don't think it's ever going to be public. But they also have some other really cool stuff in there. And so it used to be that when there was something like that, that the journal was just completely closed to the public. Well, in recent years, they've tried to find ways. Okay, we know there's stuff in here that's not for public consumption. But there's a lot of stuff in there that could be fine for public consumption. What if we provide a redacted version that cuts out the things that are sacred, that, that are not for public eyes, but allow people to use the document for, you know, for the other research purposes. And that's been going on more and more. And, and I assume that that's going to continue to go on more and more. When someone says, well, how come this wasn't done before? I mean, I, I think it just demonstrates a lack of, of, of institutional history in the resources that were assigned to it. I mean, certainly, are there people in the church who believe that the more you study history, the greater chance there is that you're going to lose your testimony. Yes. Yeah, you meet those people all the time. And certainly there are people who were of the opinion that archives should be primarily to keep and preserve things, but not to make them public. Again, there are archives like that all over the world where you the, the point of them is so that the, the record exists not so that you can go down on a, on a Friday and, and do some research for your family history. So certainly there's been an ebb and flow where there, there, you know, there's a, there's a very funny sign from the early days of the church history library uh, from, from the church archives where it, where it says church archives, no admittance, you know, um, that, that, that idea was, you know, for a while it was closed. And in fact, sometimes when it comes to things like, the theft of documents, forging of documents, it makes people say, you know what? Why are we making this public at all? So you will always have that kind of thing balanced back and forth. For your friends who say, I mean, I'm guessing some version of, well, the church is hiding everything and they're only publishing a few things that they want to put out. That is all incredibly speculative, right? They, they actually don't have a way to prove what it is they're saying. What can they prove? That the church has made more public in the last 10 years that have been public, you know, in the hundred years prior to that. Therefore, 
they must have been hiding something in the previous hundred or years. Or the internet didn't really exist. Or the hundreds of people, you know, in, in some way working at or with the Church History Library and Archives didn't work there before. The creation of the Church History Library was a big deal. The greater professionalization of, uh, that's not to say that there weren't Church History professionals, but there were very few. So you've got one or two, you know, men or women trying to do the work of 30 people. No, they aren't getting to everything, right? And and to think that they just should is 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 ridiculous. Um, the Joseph Smith papers were made possible by enormous financial contributions um, from from the Miller family, and that's the reason why they were able to hire, you know, so many professional archivists, professional historians, uh, so many volunteers that help with the text and with research and with photographs. It was it was so much money that that was that was spent to do this, and yes, as a result of that investment, you have an enormous amount of more documents that have come forward. It's not because some of those didn't exist, although some didn't. I mean, we found documents while we were at the Joseph Smith Papers. We found documents that people didn't know existed. This this kind of goes into. Um the point made by Dan around President Hinckley's uh, article, right? right? Like, like, how do we know the validity or the source of a particular thing? Right, and so he he he, he cites to uh, President Hinckley's talk in in well his his article in September of 1985 that references these two documents, and Dan's like, well, why why don't we know more about these? Where are these? How come I don't find them on the Joseph Smith Papers website? Well, because. They are forgeries. Those two documents that he's referencing in that article are two of the Hoffman forgeries that the church acquired, not knowing they were forgeries, but that they were made public and were used by enemies of the church to attack the church, who, of course, put them in whatever light they wanted to put them in. So the, the early, you know, the, the early letter, the Josiah Stoll letter, from June 18th of 1825, claimed to be the earliest Joseph Smith letter that, that would be in existence. And in fact, that's what President Hinckley says in that article, that if this were, in fact, you'll, you'll notice he, he does not say this is a true, uh, this is a, a clearly a, a true copy of it. He, he, he caveats it. He writes in the article, if it's genuine, it's the, the earliest document. So you can see there's that hesitancy that's already there. This is also that the, the, the famous salamander letter, which is another letter that was acquired at the same time. Those are the two letters that he's referencing. Now, it will later be determined that those are actually forgeries from Mark Hoffman. Now, today, with the training that we have, with the skill set that, that we were... Look, when I was at the Joseph Smith Papers, we had the FBI expert who helped uh, catch Mark Hoffman come in and train us how to spot Hoffman forgeries. So that was part of my training to work there and work on the papers. And, and so today it's a lot easier to recognize. But before you had dozens of, of people that were trained in that, before people knew the extent of Hoffman's forgeries and the type of forgeries that he did, they didn't know what to look for. And you're always back to the same thing of, well, why didn't they know X before they knew it? 
Well, no one knows anything before they know it. And, and yet, whenever we look back at history, we tend to judge them on the basis of, well, I think they should have known. Okay, yeah, I mean, that'd be great, I guess, if you did know, but they didn't. Now, someone might say, well, shouldn't a prophet know? Well, I mean, I guess it depends on how much you think God intervenes in every single thing that the prophet does. I mean, if it, it you know, does he go to buy, you know, Wheaties and he's he's directed to Raisin Bran? I mean, I I don't know what someone's personal view of of that is. But eventually these documents are found to be forgeries. When I was working at, at the Joseph Smith Papers, this goes back to the other question. Well, how do you know whether or not a document is legitimate? Well, in the wake of the Hoffman issue, look, first of all, Hoffman was the most prolific forger in American history. There are Hoffman forgeries, American history Hoffman forgeries that are floating all over this country because he did not just do Latter-day Saint stuff. He did all kinds of stuff. And if you look at, I mean, you can't see it, but if you were to look at the copy of this, uh, this image that is there, um, it's, it's on paper from the time period and it does appear to be written in Joseph Smith's handwriting, or at least something that looks like Joseph Smith's handwriting. Now, the biggest giveaway to me reading it is this is ridiculously better writing than anything else Joseph Smith wrote. I mean, most of the words are spelled correctly. I mean, you look at something he's writing seven years later, and it's riddled with grammatical and spelling errors. And this one has a couple, but not very many. So, but that'd be something that you would look for with a more trained eye now, you know. When I was working at the Joseph Smith Papers, there was an early document that um, we considered because we didn't know its provenance. Um, it was it was in the archives, but it had not been fully fleshed out and cataloged. And why did it matter to us? Well, because we were working on the earliest volume of the papers, which included 1830, 1831. So 1828, actually, to 1831. And in this letter, it purports to be um, from somebody who runs into an early Latter-day Saint. This is July of 1831. Um, he says, Last winter, there was a revival of religion in this town. The Presbyterians were the principal actors. They had a Mr. Little John for their leader. I believe he made 18 or 19 converts that joined the Presbyterian church at the center of town. We were visited by a Mormonite, Mr. Smith, the brother of the leader. I declined to buy a gold Bible, but inquired how it was that his brother wrote it. He said that he would look under a shiny stone in the dark and there he would see the words appear. Mrs. Webster and all of our family send their respects. Well, that's a pretty awesome document if it's a real letter, right? It's a very early description of the translation of the Book of Mormon. It wouldn't be the earliest. The earliest is from the 1829 um, Palmyra Freeman, but it would obviously be a very early description of how are the how are the saints describing the translation? That's what you'd get, or at least how does this guy say that they're describing? Now we went and did some historical research on it. And, and I have a colleague, Mike McKay, who spent a ton of time on this with some other researchers. And they, you know, one of the things we found early on was, well, a lot of this stuff kind of checks out. This guy really did live in this town at this time. He really did have, you know, children this age. He really, you know, a lot of things seemed accurate. So now we're like, well, I mean, if this is a forgery, what a, what a Mark Hoffman go back to 
Pennsylvania and New York and do a bunch of archive and, and sense. I mean, this is before it was digital, I mean, because of the eighties. So how did he come up with all this information? Um, as, as Mike McKay notes in, in his article that he wrote on this forgery, that one of the interviews Hoffman gives, he explains that one of his techniques is to take an existing letter. So one that's a real letter, it's a real letter. It already exists. Take paper from the same era and copy it over verbatim, only adding in the few sentences or people or places that now make it incredibly valuable. And it goes from just being a, a ho-hum letter that's worth, you know, it's worth something, certainly, if it's, it's age, to being worth thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. Because now it's a letter on the translation of the Book of Mormon. Instead of, hey, I bought the Teft Farm, which is not as important to most people unless you happen to be the person who owned that farm. So there are processes whereby people try to determine the legitimacy. There's also chemical tests you would do to the paper that you would do to the... Um, to the ink, you would do tests to determine whether or not it was it was legitimate. But we find new documents all the time. There are people listening to this podcast right now who probably somewhere in a dusty attic somewhere have letters from the early church period or, or documents that they just don't even know about. That's the nature of documents. They get tossed in a box and that box gets tossed in another box and another box and another box. And, you know, a hundred years later, oh, oh, wow, here's great-grandmother's will. You know, I mean, that's, that's what happens. So there's no way to fully refute the, the allegations that, that are being made as far as, oh, hey, these people are saying that things are just hidden. But, but I will say that, that we have more access to things archivally than we ever have before. Now, that's a good thing, not a negative thing. And instead of looking at it as a good thing and trying to take into account all of the things that are there, the attempt is to make a negative argument that, well, they shouldn't have hid them for as long as they did. Certainly some things were never made public before the last 20 years. Some things are still not public now. There are documents that are not for public access, and they go through the range of different things. But my experience when I worked at the papers was when we needed certain documents in order to demonstrate the history of, of events that happen, we, we receive those documents and we, and we use them. And, and that I think is something that's happening more and more in the end, whether the church has all of its documents released or none of its documents released. Um, the only way that you're going to determine whether or not this is the true church and led by a prophet of God or whether, uh, the, the, the church has become corrupt and we all need to follow Denver snuffers through the Holy Spirit. If you listen to President Nelson and pray and ask God whether or not he's a prophet of God, my belief is that you will receive the witness that he is. And yes, will there be questions about our past that we can't fully answer? Of course, that's the case with literally every organization that exists. But if we maintain our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, in the Book of Mormon, and the teachings of his prophets and apostles and the current teachings of the prophet, then we're going to be, we're going to be okay, even if we don't have the answer to everything. So thank you so much for uh, listening, and hopefully this answered some questions. Thank you for listening to the Standard of Truth podcast, hosted by historian Dr. Garrett Dirkmott. 
If you know anybody that could benefit from the material in this episode, please share it with them. And for more resources, visit standardoftruth.com. Until next time.